Hello everybody, my name is Sheila Ramchuk and I'm part of the ERS Monograph Editorial Board as their Early Career Member Representative. I'm currently a pulmonologist working in the Manchester region in the UK and today we are recording a podcast relating to the newest monograph entitled Respiratory Diseases of the Newborn Infant. We're incredibly privileged to be joined by two of the guest editors, Ian Sinner and Jayesh Batts. Ian is a consultant respiratory paediatrician at Alderhey Children's Hospital in Liverpool, and he has a particular interest in neonatal lung disease and asthma. And Jayash, who is a consultant in respiratory paediatric in a busy children's hospital in Nottingham. And Jayash himself has a specialist interest in bronchopulmonary dysplasia and orphan lung diseases. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this bumper edition. It's a a really amazing edition of the monograph. It's really intuitively set out, the chapters in a really nice way. They just lead the reader through. And I was just, I suppose, really curious as to what drew you both to this career path. Obviously, being a respiratory physician can be really challenging, but to be doing that in a paediatric population, it would be really interesting to know why, why you both were drawn. I think by the time I was coming into respiratory paediatrics, uh, JS was a very established consultant. I think I came in at a really exciting time. I think in the time, in the years before I decided to be a respiratory paediatrician, there'd been a lot of progress, a lot of work in some really important areas. I was drawn to to various things. The first time I was really attracted to respiratory paediatrics as a career was, in fact, as an undergraduate medical student at Newcastle. And I was uh, in clinic with a a consultant called Dr. Chris O'Brien and watching him take a history from a child with asthma. And I was struck by the multidisciplinary nature of the team. I was struck by how amazing the consultants and the team were at the time. But most of all, I was struck by the, the children and the families and despite having to go through so much just to get through the day. You know, that's that, that was the key thing. Children with asthma, cystic fibrosis, babies with bronchopulmonary dysplasia. These families were just trying to get through the day. Uh, and they just did really well. I, I, and I found them an inspirational bunch and I continue to be inspired by them. That's amazing, though, to hear that it was when you were in your undergraduate <laughs> career that it attracted you. Well, yeah, do you know, I, and, I, and I kept an open mind. And, and the thing that really cemented it for me was my, uh, in those days, PRHO placement on an adult respiratory ward in Middlesbrough. Mm-hmm. And while everyone was running away from the adult respiratory ward in Middlesbrough in the middle of December, I was absolutely enthralled by this. I was like, this is the most interesting thing I've seen in my life. And, and so by that time, I knew I was going to do something uh, respiratory. And, 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 you know, for lots of reasons, paediatrics was the call for me. And, and I think one of those things was the, the long-term effects of what we do. I, I liked the idea that we can make change. Mm-hmm. And Jayesh? Well, I think I'll, I'll break it down in, in maybe three or four components. Um, uh, one is um, the absolute breadth and spectrum of conditions that we encounter, um, both acute uh, and then long-term, starting in the neonatal period and then stretching up to transition, really attracted me. But even going back before that, I think uh, serendipity. So I, uh, by chance, it happened that uh, in all the training jobs I was doing, Purely by chance, my education supervisors happen to be respiratory pediatricians or people with respiratory interests. And, and I think that sort of uh, really got me into it because I, mean, I had already done post-graduation in pediatrics in India. And when I came here, I then had to decide what, after doing my core training, what subspeciality would I pursue? And I think that really dovetailed in quite nicely. 
and a, a personal reason as well. Um, my dad had really bad asthma. I wanted to understand the respiratory diseases more. And then uh, as the education supervisors, I, I encountered them. You know, a lot of them were really good role models. You know, I learned so much from people like Mark Everard, Rob Premack, Andy Bush. It just, uh, you know, escalated into um, bringing me where I am. And I take it the community as well as quite small, so that you two have met, I presume, you work together. Yes, we, we don't obviously look after patients together because we work in different centres. But, you know, meeting, yes, you know, with various different things uh, like clinical meetings, conferences. Ian and I both do a lot of work for the college, uh, for the, our organisation, the British Pediatric Respiratory Society. And then, you know, we have become good friends over time. Did that kind of prompt this edition of the monograph? I'll jump in before Ian says anything. This is Ian's idea. This is absolutely Ian's baby. So, yeah, go for it, Ian. I remember a conversation we had, and and one of the nice things about our specialty, I'm sure with many specialties, is that we bounce ideas off each other, don't we? In such a large field that there are areas where there's so much uncertainty that, you know, it's good practice to just bounce ideas off each other. And I was really interested in neonatal lung disease anyway. I I really enjoyed my neonatal intensive care. I I enjoyed the idea of, you know, the lungs at this stage of the journey. And when I became a consultant, I took over this clinic that I'd, you know, I'd had my eye on this clinic for a little while and I was, you know, taking over somebody else's role. And then I started as a consultant and I thought, what am I doing? I died. You know, I don't really know whether what I'm doing here is right. And so one day I was, I think we were just having sandwiches at the college or something. And I, and I just ran a couple of patients past JS and realized that there were some things that I was doing that seems to be on the right lines and others that I thought, okay, I need to bring that into my clinic. And I think I was also struck by differences across the country in how neonatal services and, and the respiratory follow-up are set up and how people do things and and there are some big differences and a lot of those come down to the ethos of approach and I think there had been some really interesting and good papers about neonatal lung disease but over the last couple of years I think there have been advances and we just wanted somewhere where these things were compiled together you know as a collection of -of state-of-the-art reviews by some of the world's leading authors, but also some really up and coming earlier career people, both scientists and clinicians. And I think we wanted something that brought together the science and the clinical aspect as well. And so the monograph seemed like a perfect way to do that. As with all these things, it just started off with a conversation and and blossomed from there. I say blossomed, you know, there's been a huge amount of work from the whole team, both at the ERS, plus the, you know, our co-editors, Helen and Alex, plus the people that wrote the chapters, plus the people that reviewed the chapters. You you know, there's been a whole load of work. I think some of the best things come over crustless sandwiches. Mm. (laughs) But it's... (laughs) But I think um, it's certainly reflected in the monograph that you've got a really amazing a marriage between the scientists, the early careers and established authors when you read the chapters. And I suppose this is always a bit of a controversial question, given the breadth of the chapters that are included with this monograph. But if there was a must read chapter, if you only had 30 minutes or so, which chapters would you direct the listeners to? I think that's probably will reflect personal bias, but but I would say, uh, you know, the bronchopulmonary dysplasia chapters, as Ian alluded earlier, that, you know, that there's, you know, a breadth of expertise involved in, in putting all this together. It's inevitable that in clinical practice, there will be variations, there will be variability in, in how people approach things. And what we wanted to do was that, you know, try and highlight that 
and then give people the tools to to be able to use the information in the monograph to alter or modify or confirm their good practice. BPDs is a prime example where there is so much variation in defining it, strategies to try and prevent it, and and then the immediate uh, management of it and the longer-term approach to it. So I think uh, even though it reflects personal bias, uh, go for the chapter on bronchopulmonary dysthesia. I'm going to give a really bad answer and say I, I couldn't pick one. One of the nice things about the monograph, and one of the things I'm really proud of, is that it does flow. It does seem to, mm. to flow in a good way. But also, you could just pick up any of those chapters as a standalone and just read about something. So there are certain aspects of this uh, monograph that I have quite a few things to do with. For example, the structural lung disease. I, I do a structural lung disease clinic The congenital diaphragmatic hernias you know these are things where i've kept abreast of the literature and it was really good to read the chapters to carry that on but actually i really enjoyed reading about some stuff that i don't normally get involved with so you know even though i'm a respiratory pediatrician i've stepped a little bit away from cystic fibrosis just because (laughs) there's only you know so much time in a week Uh, and i've got some amazing colleagues at at liverpool and they do a fantastic job i think with cf you know it's been a brilliant story in cf over the last 20 years it's been so exciting to watch improvements and it was really nice for me to catch up on that chapter the other chapters that I really, I really enjoyed the science chapters. When we asked the authors to write those, the remit was very much, don't write this for scientists, you, you know, write this for clinicians, because sometimes the best advances in care come when we understand the science better. And so those were fascinating to me. And to the end of the monograph, we wanted some additional chapters that were slightly different from just talking about clinical things. So we've got a chapter on ethics, which again is not my area of expertise, but I think it's 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 a lovely chapter. We've got something from our colleagues in Nigeria, neonatal care in lower income settings, which again is something that I've been fortunate enough to have been exposed to. We've got some good links with with Nigeria. I've been out there and seen the neonatal units and done some work with them. But also the, the chapter on social economic problems so uh, i'm sorry i just recounted all the chapters and said they're all really good but that's my honest answer i I couldn't pick one but i I think i would suggest to people this isn't like tv series where you have to start at one and finish at 24 i've already used it and cited it twice once was for a paper for brief in fact commissioned by by yourself about the long-term benefits of palavizumab rsv prophylaxis and the other is for a really important case that i'm working with at the moment about the impact on respiratory health of children living next to landfill sites and i cited this monograph and talked about how what happens at this period of your life what happens now is, is, is crucial so I'm hoping that this is something that I keep coming back to and keep referring to. And uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased with it. You're right. I think the enthusiasm that uh, you are able to reflect in, in uh, highlighting all the chapters is also the enthusiasm that authors have shown, isn't it? Yeah. And, and uh, therefore, you know, uh, your answer is a good one. <laughs> and, it, you know, choosing a topic or a chapter, uh, it, it doesn't really do justice. You're right, though, Jayesh, the BPD is the most important of all of them that I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Ian's learnt from the best obviously <laughs> it really is as a non-respiratory paediatrician reading some of the chapters particularly the science ones which I'm always a little nervous about but credit to your authors because it's written in an incredibly understandable way 
you can dip in and out. So I was quite interested in reading the IOD chapters, mm. as I've mentioned previously, the pH chapters, the CF. And I think it is amazing how things have changed. And I was really curious from when you guys and Ian, and I remember being a PRHO as well in Edinburgh, good days, but tell me how things have changed over your career, particularly say in CF or in IOD or with RSV, what, what things have you noticed that have changed over the years from when, say, you first graduated even? I, I suppose uh, picking up on a couple of topics you mentioned, cystic fibrosis clearly. Uh, I think in the UK, we have been uh, doing newborn screening for over 30 years, but that was uh, more regional and it was in the notice that I think 2006 that it became universal around the country. So I think the newborn screening has made a, a big difference to how how early these children are diagnosed and early management clearly has had impact on longer term outcomes. And then in, in the last sort of six, seven years, the availability of uh, CFTR modulators and the landscape of CF management has changed dramatically. It's so good for the families. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were children who, who would have been coming in regularly, you know, spending half of the year in the hospital for treatment. Mm. Now hardly ever need to come in the quality of life and uh, whatever you can measure and brew imaging various lung function modalities all that is is changing out of recognition so i think the two things over, over sort of my working life in cf you know the the universal uh, newborn screening application across the country and more recently the availability of cftr modulator drugs has been just amazing ILD, I, I think, again, that is a rapidly evolving field. Our understanding of those diseases, and I'm sure adults see a lot more ILD than we do, but for children up to two years, it, it's a completely different set of conditions as compared to what you would see in the adult respiratory clinics. So understanding of that, the, the, uh, the evolving classifications, and then more recently, European protocols to approach, to diagnose them, and, and uh, maybe consider some treatments. And the genetics of ILD, that is now becoming available. Eight, ten years ago, we could test for three surfactant protein variants, and now they're up to 50. So you have to be vigilant about these changes happening, and then that's the most exciting thing in the field of ILD, I think. Tell me a bit about RSV and the use of biologics in certain groups. I was interested to read that chapter because I don't remember that. Forgive me if I'm wrong for my paediatric rotation as an undergraduate. I don't. Is that something new that's happened? Tell me a little bit about the rationale behind it. I mean, the idea of RSV prophylaxis with palivizumab and monoclonal antibody. You know, that's not new. That's been around since probably early noughties, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Okay, I obviously didn't pay enough attention. Yeah, yeah. So we know that RSV is a ubiquitous virus, and the only time it went missing was was last year <laughs> during lockdown. <laughs> you know, and it's come back with a little bit of a vengeance. At the, at the moment, we're seeing an RSV surge, and this is reflecting what happened in the Southern Hemisphere there post-lockdown after things opened up there. RSV season was delayed, and was worse than you might expect. So we're starting to see a similar thing here. We're monitoring this at the moment. It may turn out that way. With the palivizumab, the reason that we give it is because the evidence suggests that it's a, an effective and cost-effective way of reducing the risk of severe infection requiring hospitalization in 
particular groups of high-risk infants. And we know that babies born preterm, because their lungs are underdeveloped and their immune system is, is less well-equipped to deal with RSV, we know that that's a group that were proving difficult. There they, 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 you know, were high rates of hospital admission, giving palivizumab reduces that. And one of the current bits of thinking about RSV, and, I, and for me, this is one of the most interesting things that has changed recently, I think, in respiratory pediatrics, is that giving palivizumab in the early years might prevent severe bronchiolitis, which might then prevent severe episodes of, of, of wheeze and work from long-term follow-up of cohort studies in the 1950s and 60s show us now that those episodes, you, you know, we see these kids and call them happy wheezers or whatever the terminology is at the time. You know, we all have these kids coming through our clinics who have persistent cough and stuff. And as well as focusing on thinking about them now, these birth cohort studies tell us that these are the children that go on to, in adult life, have COPD. So thinking about the long-term consequences of these episodic problems in children is now a really important way to think about respiratory pediatrics. So that's one of the new ways of thinking about panavisual. Does it offer long-term benefit? And I think the other kind of interesting thing about RSV is that there's a lot of work going on by various teams around the country, including Professor Cunningham at Edinburgh and his team, looking at other ways of preventing RSV, including immunizations, other types of monoclonal antibodies. And I think that's really good. And alongside that, and I think there's probably less work in this at the moment, what we really know is that the best way to stop your hospital being full of infants with bronchiolitis every winter is to stop women smoking when they're pregnant and to encourage breastfeeding. And both of those need investment and resources to give babies the best start in life. Thank you. I think along that field, looking at how children are living, and you've already touched on this, particularly with your landfill paper, another really interesting chapter was the socioeconomic influences. I'd be really grateful if you could talk to us a little bit about that because it's only perhaps relatively recently certainly in adult medicine we're we're suddenly all realizing even though it's something we all knew that prevention is always better than cure. I think we and certainly by the time I was starting in the spiritual pediatrics I know that Jayesh and his colleagues were thinking in, in, in this way but my feeling very much is that in a huge proportion of people that you see in your clinic you know and on your wards you know what you're really seeing is just the manifestation of what went wrong 40 years ago in, the, in, in these people. And, and it's really important that we start to think about this. An important concept at the moment about if you could democratise healthcare, what would that look like? And, 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 you know, if you were to say to a mother of a child with asthma, right, would you rather spend the money on Jayesh and I treating your child in the clinic or would you rather spend the money on preventing your child having asthma in the first place? Of course, they would take the latter. The fact that we do it this way around isn't from anything other than well-meaning people. But, but actually, our funding is very much focused on troubleshooting and mopping up things that went wrong, you know, even before these children were born. So, the, the, you know, the evidence from the States is that when you look at uh, ethnic differences between black women and, and white women in terms of the, the health of their babies, whether they survive through the pregnancy, whether they're born preterm, whether how they do on the, on the neonatal unit, birth weight, lung, all these kinds of things, a lot of those inequalities don't even begin before birth. They begin before conception. Rightly, we're making a big noise about the quality of housing in which we make pregnant women and children and other people live. 
that actually, you know, the uterus is, is one of the most important residences that, that you ever have. You know, the quality of health you have as a fetus it determines how you are when you're born, which determines how you are when you're adults. So, yeah, I think there's a huge need to, to rethink the role of wider determinants of health. There's a, a need for us to reconsider two things. Again, prevention is better than cure. And the cure for this that we're thinking of currently is, you know, how can health services really start to address the inequalities that we're seeing? What we're seeing in Alder Hay, 75% of cases is just simply the manifestations of poverty, of living in poor quality housing, having poor quality nutrition, breathing air pollution that's you know redirected through your part of the city and in particularly the industrial pollution that happens well, once we start thinking about that, there are things that we can do. There are things that I can do in my clinic. There are things that my chief executive needs to do and can do and, and is doing. But alongside that, there's also a need for us to advocate for better services and better things to protect our children from, from being unwell. And alongside that, there's, I think, a real global need to reframe the narrative about child poverty you know the single mums for example that we that we have in Liverpool and, and around the country there's often a huge stigma associated with this but my experience and I'm sure Jayesh's is as well is that these are some of the most inspirationally organized hard-working resilient resourceful people you know in the country we have it ingrained within us that child poverty is the fault of the parents and do you know what 70 percent of kids in poverty in the UK have at least one parent doing at least one job you know this is in work poverty which means that people aren't being paid enough benefits to top things up that's why if you look in the most deprived decile people are having to spend 70 percent of their expendable income just on feeding their children so uh, you know th this becomes an unsustainable problem we also need to shift this narrative directly onto children by the time people are coming to your clinic Sheila obviously there's you know something that we need to do that you know people need to live good lives but in terms of preventing them coming to your clinic the only thing we can do is focus on the early years you know after that there's a couple of windows here and there that might work in some people but the damage is done early in life there's evidence at least in, in terms of um, cigarette smoke exposures there are some studies which have shown that if the grandmother smokes the mother doesn't smoke by possibly epigenetic mechanisms. There are consequences on lung health of the third generation baby. I'm not aware of any evidence for other adverse environmental influences, but it, it makes you think, isn't it, that it's likely that poor housing, poverty, all those could have influence across generations. Absolutely. And, you know, the evidence suggests that up to 10% of the function of your DNA is altered by living in poverty. You know, we used to be told, Poverty gets under your skin. It doesn't. It gets into your cells. It gets into the very chemicals that make up who we all are. And, and that's determined by where you live. And you're right, the epigenetic things about skipping generations. It's so scary. And one of the things that I've learned from reading about the landfill stuff is that there's a real focus on acute high levels of things. And, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, we saw this change in lead you know, the levels of serum lead that you would consider to be high were actually pretty high. 
And there was some work from the States that suggested that even at very low levels of lead, much lower than the levels that were recommended, you were seeing that changes in lead concentration affected children's IQ and their intellectual and educational and mental capabilities and behavioral stuff. And, you know, this is the same thing that we're seeing from landfill sites. It's the baseline exposure all the time, constantly breathing this gas that that can, you know, impact on your lung development and lung growth. So, yeah, there are definitely changes in those environmental exposures. And, you know, we really need to be putting children in deprived communities right at the centre of our policies about that, because currently they're not. You know, if you look at the injustices around air pollution, the poorest areas make the least air pollution. They're exposed to the most air pollution and they benefit the least from any policies around air pollution. So we absolutely need to shift. And I'm glad that you found that chapter on socioeconomic uh, determinants of neonatal health to be interesting. I found it very interesting. And actually, we asked an obstetrician to write that because I wanted to drill home this idea that this stuff happens before birth. We are seeing, hopefully, less use of cigarettes in the younger generation. But one thing I have noticed, particularly on my drives to other hospitals in the area, is that I see a lot of young people, school children, vaping. And I was just wondering your thoughts on that, because we don't really know the long-term effects. The first thing I would say is that the approach by pediatricians to, to vaping is going to be different uh, from the approach by adult physicians, uh, because you know, we, we're not uh, in the position to ask people to take a vaping because they want to quit smoking. So, so that's not what we are talking about. What we have seen, and I think before the COVID pandemic, clearly the one big global health news was the uh, the Evali epidemic from, from America, you know, the electronic vapor, uh, vapor-induced lung injury. Uh, so there is so much evidence that in young uh, adults and, and some children in their teens, there are significant, you know, life-threatening acute consequences of exposure to, to electronic cigarette vapor exposure. And, and there are so many things in that, you know, not just cannabinoids, which was, you know, largely thought to be contributory to the the American epidemic, but, you know, about a fifth of them or 20% did not have cannabinoids in the vaping liquid, you know, from that American epidemic. So there are non-cannabinoid substances in the vaping liquid that can make young people very, very unwell. So clearly, I think uh, very significant uh, consequences. I think long term, no one really knows. Uh, so it, it's impossible to comment on that. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you would question, isn't it, that something that makes you so unwell in an acute basis is going to have no long term consequences, you know, and then that's a question that needs to be answered. I don't think there is any any evidence absolutely on, on second hand consequences of electronic uh, cigarette vapor exposure. There are mechanistic suggestions that how, you know, there could be absorption of the vapor from the skin or from the mucous membranes on, on sort of experimental basis. So it, it doesn't rule out that that might be happening. So in summary, I think definite immediate adverse lung health consequences, uh, medium and long term, uh, no one really knows. But, you know, you would question as that, you know, if something makes you so unwell in the acute setting, would it not have any long term consequences? Jayesh, on that thought of sort of long-term consequences, when you've been sort of speaking about this, what's been the reaction that you've had? Mine has very much been, stay out of it, this is good for adults who smoke. And I'm like, yeah, I get that, but my perception was the paediatric side of this was ignored. Is that, is that your 
perception on this as well? I think that there are you know, differing opinions by different August bodies in different countries. You know, the ERS has been very clear on you know the, the consequences of vaping and then what people should be saying about it. It's, it's such a hot topic that you know it's probably not been able to answer that in this uh, podcast. But uh, what I would say is that you know it, it, it's good to look at the ERS policy. Mm. They are very clear on on the, the adverse consequences, not just for pediatrics. And, and I think bringing it back to, to what is relevant to this monograph, so as well as the acute effects, I suppose you know what has changed in my day-to-day clinical practice is that I now ask regularly about parents um, smoking, but also electronic uh, cigarette vapor exposure. And then, you know, whether that would be relevant to, to mothers who are pregnant who might be using electronic cigarette vapors and what would be happening to the babies inside them and after the birth, who knows, in only time will tell. But I have started asking that question in, in the clinic on a regular basis and then at least highlighting that the potential downsides to children from it. Are there any particular reasons why this monograph, there's lots of reasons in my mind, but how would you sell this essentially to the adult respiratory community to to read? What can they gain from it? I think at the very least, it's going to be the awareness of the determinants of the problem cases you see or all, you know, most of the cases you see in your clinics, but also some, you know, maybe not yet obvious relevant factors. You, you mentioned RSV and then Ian covered the you know, RSV prophylaxis very well. And I, I don't do adult medicine, so I wouldn't know. But when we hear talks on RSV in, in pediatric respiratory meetings, the experts keep saying that uh, actually RSV is as much a problem in elderly mm. uh, as it is in kids. Mm. Uh, so uh, I think uh, those are the sort of things I'm sure will interest your colleagues. Yeah, I, I agree. Again, you've started believe in this idea that there are early childhood things that lead to adult disease. You know, even with things like diaphragmatic hernia, it wouldn't be beyond the scope of things to see an adult who had a diaphragmatic hernia repair presenting at the age of 35 with severe breathlessness in an adult clinic. And the CDH chapter in in, in the monograph, and it would be a good resource to just touch base. Uh, You know, we, so we've probably all got our things where you know that if you hear a name of a condition, you're going to go on PubMed or Wikipedia or whatever it is. For me, it's metabolic stuff. If anybody says there's a child that's come to see you with this metabolic condition, I have to immediately go to read about it because I I know that I just don't have that. And I would hope that in some ways the, the monograph might be a useful tool for people to you know to touch on as needed but also as jf says you know there's something really within this about the early onsets of adult disease that, that people might find interesting and even though it's a book on neonatal respiratory diseases i, I suppose you know from the conditions that we included you know we're learning lessons like for example cystic fibrosis and clearly asthma there is now well-established transition services for some of the things that are covered in, in the monograph, really none of those exist. And, and I know it is uh, uh, you know, going to be a challenge to set up transition services, for example, for those neonates who have had surgery for lung disease or airway disease in the newborn period, because they have ongoing morbidity. You know, some pediatric centers do keep uh, seeing them along with the surgeons, uh, but when they get to transition age, what happens to them? So I think if there is... a awareness about those sort of things, whether there might be a shift in that direction. Absolutely. I don't know if either of you have anything else, any other questions you'd like me to touch on? 
No, I think personally, I'll start off by thanking Ian and the ERS office, uh, Helen and, and Alex, uh, for, for this to nicely come together. One of the things that in as uh, colleagues and, and uh, people in the department have started knowing about it, uh, well, the first question they ask is that, how long did that take? <laughs> and it has been amazing. I think so it's a tribute to the, the authors and the reviewers for it to be pulled together in, in the, the time that it was pulled together. I think this edition, for me, it was really thought-provoking seeing it from your point of view. And I actually have genuinely really enjoyed reading the chapters and our concept of poverty. It's so different to what it was. So thank you. Thank you for, for really talking about it and being so honest about it, as well as asking questions. As when you, I think you mentioned very early on about being a new consultant and asking questions. And I find I ask many more questions now than I think when I was a registrar during training, because there's just so much more to question. So thank you both, Jayesh and Ian. You have given us much to consider, and I cannot stress enough to the listeners how much I've enjoyed and taken away from reading your edition of the monograph. Now, I'm afraid this brings us to the end of this podcast. Again, thank you all for your time. And I hope the listeners enjoy this as much as I have. Thank you. Bye, everybody.